Hello, and welcome to Clear on Life. In this episode, I interview Danielle Applestone. Danielle is the founder of Daughters of Rosie. She's an engineer, entrepreneur, and a mom who cares deeply about unlocking the capacity of the U.S. workforce. At Daughters of Rosie, she helps high-potential hourly workers explore careers where they can grow. Danielle grew up learning how to build things around the house, and besides being a hands-on, build-anything entrepreneur, she's also very gifted at looking for and understanding the underlying data patterns and trends, and using those insights in guiding her business decisions and actions. This interview is an attempt at looking at how she thinks and operates in the world, and how she approaches problems and obstacles. This helps me go beyond being inspired and gives me something to model my life after. I hope you find this interview inspiring and useful in your life as well. Enjoy. The Clear on Life Podcast. Clear on Life. Clear on Life. Clear on Life. The Clear on Life Podcast. The journey into finding purpose, meaning, and clarity in life. Welcome to the Clear on Life Podcast. Danielle, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I heard that you are in the middle of a fundraising right now. Mm-hmm. And this is, how many times have you done this before? This is my sixth time to ask the venture capital world for money. Okay. And, and would you call yourself a serial entrepreneur? Oh, yeah, definitely. This is my third business that has ever made money and probably my sixth business <laughs> ever. Oh, I see. <laughs> the other ones were like, you know, failed or didn't get off the ground before they, you know, also failed. So you kept trying and here you are. Would you call Daughters of Rosie a success? I would call it a success in that I had a couple questions that I wanted to ask about the world. And one of them was, could we bring people who don't look qualified on paper for a job and get them hired because they had underlying competencies or skills or things that weren't reflected necessarily in their job history, but they were, you know, innate to the person. And we to date have placed about two dozen people who on paper don't look like they qualified for the job, but they've been very successful in the job since being hired. And that's you know, that's a couple dozen people's lives who are different. People who get paid about 30% more than they did before, and they have benefits now that they didn't have before also. What made you do this in particular versus anything else? What was the uh, motivating factor? Did you just wake up one day and you're like, you know, I think there's a need for uh, people in this category to go and find jobs here? Yeah. I think that I had finally gotten to the point in my life where I felt safe. So there was a lot of trying to get out of where I was, whether it was from leaving Arkansas and a rural community to getting to college and being the first person in my family to ever go to college and then being a single mom and getting through grad school and getting here and getting there. And it was a lot of climbing is what it felt like. And after I sold my second company, I finally felt like I'm going to be okay. 
Like I'm going to be able to feed my family and I've really put a stake in the ground and all the things that I've accomplished can't be taken away. And so that was the point where I decided, well, I could go make a lot of money for someone else in this world, you know, working at a big company, or I could take all of the power and privilege and things that I now have an agency and turn it back on to people who might not have that people who are still climbing. So I, I just started exploring the idea and thinking about the things that had motivated me the most about my last company where I ran a manufacturing business and we hired people to work on a production floor that had never considered manufacturing as a career. And they did great. We hired unlikely people and they were fantastic. And to watch how they felt about themselves change. In addition to like the skills they gained, they also gained the ability to value themselves. And that was really powerful to me. I have an engineering background and I love all the tech stuff and robots and whatnot, but I was most inspired by what some skills, uh, technical skills could do for a person, both in terms of internal shifts and then also being able to get better jobs than they had had before. So I thought if I could do that every day for the rest of my life, that would be really exciting. Like that would be a satisfying time for me. And it is risky, but I think that I have insights that are valuable and there's a reason that it hasn't happened yet. There's a reason that there's, you know, not very many women in manufacturing and there's a women, there's a reason that there's a pay gap and a reason why people struggle if they don't finish college. And so I wanted to, to see if I could have an impact on that. Hmm. And so how long ago did you start Daughter Sarosi? In terms of thinking about the idea, like the first genesis of the idea was probably about two years ago. But officially, we started in October of 2018, running, ran some pilot programs the summer before that, just to see if the idea had any, you know, good hold water, and then raised our first small pre-seed round of funding at the end of last January. So since funding, it's been a year and a couple months. Birthing an idea. And, and then making it something real. How do you do that? What's the process? Like how much energy do you have to put in to actually take something from zero to, hey, it's a company employing people and helping the community and the world? Mm. That process is a weird one because this idea in particular, this is the first company that I am starting that is my idea. The other companies that I started were other people else's ideas, and I thought, oh, that looks cool. I bet I could make that into something. But can we uh, sure. take a little detour here? So can you tell me a little more about taking someone else? Were you taking someone else's idea and making it a th company, or was it, did they pay you for what was the deal versus mm. this one? Yeah, the two other companies I co-founded with a person who, you know, in the first case, it was my boyfriend at the time from college. And he taught me how to program. 
in Pearl as a just a hobby fun thing we could do together because we were both like nerds and mm. that was a <laughs> I mean of course that's what you do a nerd couple <laughs> yeah nerd couple learning how to pro- well he already knew how to program but and then he was like okay let's see what we can make with this let's start a business and around that business for 13 years after that so it was like <laughs> pretty intense experience but it was just a, an idea he had and motivations that he had mm-hmm. but it turns out there was some like good fundamentals for a bootstrap SaaS business and we started that in 2003 and then the business after that was started as a government project that you know a friend of mine had gotten this government grant and hired some people to do some prototypes but didn't really have anybody to lead it lead the project and the project and the government funding went under, but we had already developed valuable technology. And so I took that technology and formed a company around it, ran a Kickstarter campaign, which was a terrible idea, but managed to work and and then raised money for that business. And so like the concept, the whole premise of that business was not mine. It actually came, the inspiration came from the government. Mm. And then there was a group of people, engineers who like made a proposal. None of that proposal was my idea. And then like the way that we were meeting the needs of that proposal was also not my idea. But the whole building the company, establishing the culture, putting some financials around it, raising money, ultimately selling the company, like that was the bulk of my work. But with Daughters of Rosie, there it was just me and my questions that I had, you know, to see if I could exert some influence on the world and move it in a direction that I thought would be more positive. That's fascinating. And one of the things that I'm dealing with these days is taking my idea and just putting it out there in the world and manifesting it as a company. Mm-hmm. And I find it extremely challenging, mainly because I got to hold a container. Mm. There's no one else doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing really, quote unquote, provided for. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so used to functioning in that environment where there's something to stand on, something's provided for. Is that something that you resonate with? Did that happen with Daughter Sorosi? Yeah, it took me a little bit to wrap my mind around whether or not this was something that I was going to do for my work, like my main job. But I would say I got to the point where it was more like it, it wasn't not going to happen. Like, Mm. (laughs) it wasn't like I chose, I mean, I did choose to form the company and whatnot, but there was like exploration of the idea like, you know, I, I got two of my friends who, you know, business people to fly with me to South Carolina to take a meeting at Michelin with the president of Michelin and ask questions like, hey, if we brought you to 10 women to work in your technician roles, would that make a difference? Would you want that? Like, what are you struggling with? Do you care about diversity? Why do you care about diversity? Like, just asking questions of a customer was kind of part of it because I thought 
I thought that might be a good direction to go in. I had heard about all of the like market factors around it. Like, oh, there's a huge labor shortage in manufacturing. There's only 26% women in manufacturing, but that's for artificial cultural reasons. You know, there's all these things. So I just, I like convinced two friends to fly with me so that I wouldn't be alone in this board meeting. And we went there and I leveraged some like network connections in the local community there to get us a bunch of meetings with other people. And it was just like kind of taking a little like one step after another. What was your emotional experience then? Was it excitement? Was it fear? And what was driving you? Because it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of unknowns in this because mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. Looking back, you could see that now. But back then, what was that experience for you like? It feels to me like a river where the bottom layer is cold and steady and just flowing and relatively unchanged by the weather on the outside. But the top surface is like windswept and full of leaves and, you know, and, and hotter and moving faster. And I would say that with Daughters of Rosie... The bottom layer was something has to be different about the workforce in the United States. And I believe that women have a ton of underutilized capacity, specifically. I think broadly, a lot of people do, but specifically women. And so that was like the cold, steady, unwavering feeling. Hmm. That just wouldn't go away. And then on the top, it would be like, oh, what should we do? Like, what does that person think? Like, oh, what am I going to do in my life? Like, is this ever going to make any money? Like, oh, I'm so tired after my other business. That was like such a slog. Should I really start another business right now? And oh, my husband wants to make me like agree to all this stuff because last time around it was like such a nightmare. And like, like that part was like this swirling tumultuous part. But it's kind of irrelevant because that the deeper part was always there and was not going to go away. So for me, it was just about aligning all of the things in my life so that I could move with that more steady purpose towards the thing that I just, towards a feeling I just couldn't get away from. I love this analogy of, uh deeper current in there and you know you have all of this extra noise maybe at the surface yeah um, let's go into what you just said about aligning your life mm -hmm. with this i would say a deeper current is mm -hmm. that what did that look like and were there sacrifices you had to make or would you, would you even call it sacrifices what was alignment like mm. yeah i think for me Coming into alignment with, like, I'm really going to pursue this idea as my full-time job and stuff, that process was more like, if I'm going to do this, it needs to not be as painful as last time. So my last company was a lot of, like, willing things to happen, like mm. sheer force of stamina of like I'm going to make this happen and it was exhausting and I had like panic attacks and like I'm just just like 
burned myself to a crisp and gained 50 pounds and was like drinking all the time and like <laughs> did you give yourself pep talks like i'm gonna do this <laughs> <laughs> um i don't even know i hardly remember i was like wow. waking up at 5 30 in the morning to like drive to the city and and like meeting all day and and i was just like burned to a crisp and you know i had some time set aside for my family but i was not a great person during that process and what i realized is like i was so far out of my body like i didn't even i was like completely out of touch and there were sacrifices that i made personally but also the impact that it had on my family that was significant and so aligning myself this time around was like actually taking myself and my family into account more and being like can i can i do this in a way that honors me and my needs in my family too and I had to have a conversation with my son who's now 15 and my husband and literally like write down rules about how I was going to behave and make agreements and one of those agreements was let's give you an example was like my husband was like okay I want to be able like if you've been up for three nights in a row, like past 11, and it's like 2 a.m., I want to be able to just like walk up to you and say, it's time for bed, and you have to just, without protest, come to bed. Hmm. <laughs> and that's for him and for me. But that was an example of, he was like, if we're going to do this, like you have to, you're, you got to take care of yourself. And you know, exercising was a thing that I hadn't done and just really trying to orient my priorities and get practice and feel like, okay, if I'm going to do this company, it's going to be in a way that is healthier for me than last time. And I think I've done a pretty good job. You know, it's roughly like a year and a half since I placed the first like ad on Facebook to see if anyone would care about what we're doing. And I'm still... I, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of balancing everything. Hmm. Got it. That's so fascinating. This idea of using willpower versus just some sort of like a natural undercurrent that just takes you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, one is really hard and the other one just kind of happens and you don't really have a choice. <laughs> I, I feel that a lot of people are in that world not realizing. They feel they're motivated, they're working hard, but what they're really doing is just spending themselves down into oh, yeah. nothing. Yeah, I described it as like, okay, if I'm going to hold this bowling ball, this like 15-pound bowling ball, I can either extend my arm out all the way and you can hand me that bowling ball and that's where I'll be holding the bowling ball, or... I can have my hand by my side and you put the bowling ball in my hand mm. and I'm going to hold the bowling ball there. Like they're both hard. You're both holding a bowling ball, but one is like a grabbing, like full exertion, so exhausting process. And the other one is like, okay, I pretty much can sustain this for a longer period of time. It's mm. kind of like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not willing myself to hold this bowling ball out when I don't really need to. Maybe it's our culture, but sometimes People feel unless you're actually sweating and exerting yourself and hurting mm -hmm. somehow, you're not really doing work or you're not being productive. 
And I've had that in my life recently. Mm -hmm. I, I realized that this idea of work was just really programmed in my head, where unless I was suffering, I wouldn't even call it productive. Yeah, the suffering economy is, <laughs> is strong. <laughs> People really believe in it. Uh, yeah, wh why do you think that is? Like, what can we do to kind of alleviate on a mass scale? Well, first of all, I think there's a couple different categories of existence. Privileged and not. I mean, as one. And so I feel like I am privileged. I have enough privilege to be able to say, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not suffer every day of my life at work. I'm just not. And if they fire me or whatever, that happens. But I don't think that everyone has that choice. I think some people really do have to work their asses off every single day. And of course, they can have different relationships with it. But like, if you're working three jobs, you're working three jobs. It's exhausting. And so I don't know, I don't really know how to reconcile that with my concept of like, people shouldn't have to suffer it. Well, the reality is that like, some people do. And that's where they're at. And I think that <laughs> part of the motivation of Daughters of Rosie is to be like, everybody needs to know their value first. Like you really have to understand your value in order to walk up to a uh, hiring manager and say like, this is my value. This is what I'm worth. And then for that employer to not have any choice. <laughs> if everybody knows their value, that raises the bar. And right now, I think a lot of decisions people make about where they work are based on feeling like they couldn't get anything better. This is the best I can do. And employers profit from feeling like you couldn't get another job. Nobody else would hire you. Right. And so I think that like the first step to being able to like, for our whole society to be able to live in a way where people aren't suffering at work is like for everyone to be valued appropriately. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. That's just like a wild idea. Got it. Like it's funny how you often don't even get a chance to talk about the deeper motivations behind what you're doing. There's the like, what's the business case? And mm -hmm. like, what's your operational strategy? And like, let's work out the financial projections and all that stuff. I'm currently fundraising and the investors who ask me about me and why I'm doing what I'm doing are the ones I want to work with. But it's, it's fun to have opportunity to chat about it. A lot of people are stuck at motivation piece. Mm -hmm. They haven't even gone to a place where they can actually create a business or think about it. You know, mm -hmm. they're stuck somewhere where they're just questioning their abilities, you know, what their worth is and all of that. And they're just stuck there. And I can see how even your company in some ways is addressing that. I'm particularly interested in your personal insights in that mainly because I feel that we could learn from that you know, mm -hmm. in, in general, like, how do you go from questioning yourself or not even questioning? It's so deeply ingrained that you don't even see a possibility of mm -hmm. you going anywhere beyond what your limited life is to accessing this deeper current of who you really are. And then seeing that all the ruffles and the noise at the top, that's what it is. And you could still go with it. Mm -hmm. I think that 
becoming an entrepreneur or doing just doing something, creating something out of nothing, no matter how big or small the idea, it relies on, at least for me, has relied on a series of small experiments in life where I proved to myself that I was capable. Hmm. So I think that actually started with like physically building stuff when I was little and being asked by my parents, like, what do you think? Let's try it. And making something out of nothing, even if it was a birdhouse or a ramp or something like that, that's extremely important because it changes the way you feel about yourself and what your capacity is. And then if you, I mean, but you can get that at any age. Like you can just say like, I want to knit a sweater or even something smaller, like I want to paint a painting or whatever. I want to put together an Ikea couch all by myself. Like the things that you haven't done before, do them and see what happens and like be present for that whole process. And then at the end of it, you kind of like step back and be like, I did that. What else could I do? And I think for me, I was always bent on getting getting to somewhere else like I I just had a sense that living in Arkansas was not really my jam and so I I learned how to do stuff and then I started talking to people and asking them for things hey could you teach me how to weld like oh where I'm gonna look up in the I'm gonna look up in the yellow pages and find a welding place I'm just gonna call them and I'm gonna see like hey I'm, I'm this, I want this, can you help me? And just going out into the world and trying to see what you can make happen, I think is also a really important part. So it's like, I built stuff when I was young, and I got the sense that I could do stuff. And then I also went out there and asked people for things. And it didn't always go great. But that's another key part of it is like opening yourself up and putting your wants out there into the world and seeing what happens. And I got a lot of experience with that. I remember even in high school, we were doing a science fair project. And my idea was like, Oh, I want to, I want to grow bacteria with gingivitis bacteria in, (laughs) in smoky air and see if, if it's really the smoke. If you smoke, does it make it worse? Or is it something else about hygiene, dental hygiene that makes, you know, makes gingivitis bacteria grow in smokers' mouths or whatever? <laughs> and I just wanted to see what would happen. That was a really involved process. First of all, I didn't know anything about gingivitis bacteria. It turns out you can't just grow it in the air. It needs anaerobic environment. So without oxygen. And I was like, wait, what? How am I going to put smoky stuff around a bacteria that dies in air? And so then it was like, oh, now I learned one thing. And then I had to learn another thing. And I had to learn another thing. And I had to like ask a teacher to, you know, I got to the point of making plans. And I had built this whole, (laughs) this whole setup, which was like, 
a box where you could light a cigarette and put it in a tube and then you put a vacuum on the other side and it would suck the smoke across a bunch of Petri dishes of bacteria. But the vacuum made it too cold for all of the bacteria to grow. And so it was like this constant (laughs) process of iterating. That was the first thing. And then I was like, oh, crap. Okay, so I'm going to try. I'm going to try bacteria in general, if like bacteria in general are affected by smoke of a cigarette. And then I'm going to, you know, and it was just like so many different turns. And I didn't have any money to buy cigarettes. So I actually went to my dentist and I asked him for $150 because I was like, I want to explore the effects of smoke on bacteria growing. And he was like, okay. And I'm like, could I have money? Could you sponsor me for that? And he's like, great. He didn't know I was going to turn around and buy $150 worth of like cigarettes and plexiglass <laughs> like <laughs> with the stuff. So had I not had the experience of like the much smaller things first, I don't know that I would have gotten to that point. But now as an entrepreneur, I feel like it's limitless. I can, through my efforts and using the network and asking for favors and showing up for people and doing a good job and then improving my network more, like I can pretty much get in front of anyone that I want to talk to. I can raise money. And I can analyze business ideas and come up with plans for how to test different hypotheses that I have. I feel like I have the tools, but it starts very small just by like proving to yourself what you're capable of. So it's been a really like involved journey for me. And how does that play out that, you know, little steps and little ways in which you're actually reinforcing to yourself, like, okay, I can do this, I can do this, you know, and then your journey is full of these, I did this, I did this, I did this. And so that narrative has become, I can do this, Mm -hmm. which is super inspiring. Mm -hmm. How does that play out in Daughters of Rosie or, you know, with your previous startup, but in particular with, with this one? Well, one thing that I think is important is to figure out what's the smallest possible thing I could do to get me on that path. So the first the first thing that I did with Daughters of Rosie was actually, you know, we ha- I was running a manufacturing facility and we hired non-traditional people and they did great. So I kind of was convinced about, well, if we could find the supply of more of these people, I know that they could do a good job in manufacturing, even if they've never considered the industry. And I know that once you get people into manufacturing, they're like, holy crap, this is an amazing job. Like I'm on a career path and I didn't even go to college. So I knew that those things were true because I had experienced them at my previous company, but I still needed to know if a company that I wasn't running would take a chance on hiring people. You kind of go, I was talking to an entrepreneur today and he described it as highest, the the hypothesis that it has the highest importance, you know, as it relates to your potential success, but you have the lowest certainty about it and test those hypotheses first. So the, the number one hypothesis that we had was, can we get companies to hire people with non-traditional backgrounds in manufacturing? So that's the thing that I wanted to do first. 
there's another saying somebody had, I don't even know, like somewhere around the Bay. It was like, oh, if you want to like have a monkey reading Shakespeare standing on top of the pedestal, like don't build the pedestal first because that's Mm. the easy part. Like teach the monkey Shakespeare first. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like that. I see. And oh, that was, that's a Google X thing, actually. I just want to like tribute that. (laughs) I was like accidentally learned that on a tour there. So, but the thing is, it's right. So don't build a pedestal first, do the monkey part. So for us, that part was, can I get another company to hire a person? But I have to get a person first. And then, well, I have to get a company that says, yeah, if you bring bring us people that are kind of like this or that, I'll hire them and we'll see how it goes. And so I just, I had a friend who was running a manufacturing facility and I said, you know, I want to try out this idea. And I think that it could have these like big implications for both women in the workforce and manufacturing, you know, labor, skilled labor gap and everything and just got him to agree to hire some people for like an eight week program. So he committed, you know, that's part of it, right? Being able to communicate what you're doing and inspire other people. And if you are truly inspired by what you're doing, then you'll be able to inspire other people with it. Mm -hmm. So spread a little bit of that inspiration onto him. And then I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. So how in the world am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to like, I'm going to spend like $4,000 getting somebody to make a video that just like shows a woman in that workplace talking about her life and like how transformative that biz- that job has been for her. And then I'm going to put that on Facebook and I'm going to see if I can get people to apply. And we got, so we spent like $4,000, which is like not you know, nothing, but I was able to get like 40 people to apply for like four positions Mm. and like 40, like relatively qualified people. I didn't spend any money on Facebook ads. I just posted it to my Facebook and I was like, Hey everybody share this everywhere. Like I'm trying to do this thing, like see what happens. And we got applicants and four people, you know, joined the training program and two of them are still employed. It's like a year and a half later almost. And so that was like the smallest possible thing that I could do was like, okay, if I have a company that'll like, could I get any company to agree to this? Yes. But it was my friend's company. So Mm. like, you know, there's that. But you got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. Yeah. It counts. And like, that was the story that I told to people on Facebook. We got an overwhelming number of women to, to join this training program and then he was like, actually, this was pretty good. We're going to hire two of these people full time. And then that was the story that I told to get the second and third customers who were not friends of mine, but who were friends of investors who knew me mm-hmm. <laughs> and who I had talked to. And then it was like, okay, three pilot projects. And like, here's roughly what we think the next set of experiments we're going to run are. And then, I mean, and this is this is a leap that I don't think that a lot of people would make unless they had been serial entrepreneurs. So I was like, okay, this is good enough to raise money. So I went out and raised some money. Um, what would an entrepreneur that's a new entrepreneur, they haven't done this, if they didn't make the leap, what does it look like versus taking the leap? They probably have to self-fund more, get more proof. 
do it more times. Raise raise a little money from friends and family. Maybe join an accelerator or an incubator. If you don't already have a network of investors, it's really hard to go out your first time and raise money without any kind of support system. So I think most people would like get a network hmm. first. Start talking about their idea. It would take it would take longer probably to raise their first money because they're like you know, if you haven't done it before, there's a lot of things you don't know about being an entrepreneur in general or running a business. And, you know, sometimes ideas are good enough that investors will take a risk on a first time founder. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really hard. So <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you just got to work up to work up to it. At least I did anyway. Got it. Got it. Now, let's talk about this gift that you have your ability to go in there and quote unquote do the homework which is you have to see if there's a need that exists that mm-hmm. aligns with your vision mm-hmm. so how did you go about doing that yeah the internet is amazing so you can find data on just about everything you want to know like you just ask questions one of the first questions is how much money do companies spend on recruiting and hiring people how much do companies spend on training people what's like the amount of turnover that companies have at the entry level and then from there you can be like okay now i can use these numbers and i can calculate probably what's the cost of that turnover if they're if if a company spends twelve hundred dollars a year training a new person and every three months you have to have a new person in this role, then you're spending like 4X that every year on training because you're being cheap about recruiting. (laughs) And so you're paying for it in training. So there's like that kind of stuff. You just sort of start to make inferences to get yourself comfortable around the business model. And one of those things is like, okay, one of the things that I had to figure out in the beginning was how many people are graduating from community colleges or technical schools with credentials in hands-on stuff like welding or reliability technician or machinist or all of that? And how many new jobs open up every year? And how many jobs are there currently that are open? The Bureau of Labor Statistics is like my favorite website because you can learn so much about the flow of people into and out of jobs, how how much money are companies losing because they don't have the number of people they need? Because then mm. you can know how much would it be worth to them to solve their labor problem, right? Assuming they know that that's what they're losing. Yeah. So yeah. so it's like, okay, if a manufacturing company, their, the money they make is directly related to how many widgets they produce. If they have, if their workforce is 20% less than it should be, they're making 20% less widgets. And so they're leaving, you know, whatever their margin on each widget is, 
which you can you you know you can also look up oh like average margins in in a consumer goods manufacturing business is like five to seven percent or or whatever like ten to fifteen percent and then you're like oh okay cool so they're making twenty percent less widgets than they should be each widget they're they should be making you know this much margin on top of it and this is what their current production is and you're like holy cow the mm. fact that they don't have enough people on the production floor they're losing a ton of money. Now that's assuming that they could sell every widget they make, which is not necessarily true, but in some industries it is. So, and you know, like if there's scarcity of widgets and the price goes up. So there's like all these factors that you have to like try to figure out how to weigh. But but I have found that just like back of the envelope calculations have been really powerful. Like I figured out that for every one person in the United States that graduates with a technical degree from a community college or, you know, vocational school, there's eight open jobs. We're not, you know, the capacity of those institutions, like technical colleges and stuff, is not designed to make up for the huge deficit we already have in manufacturing it's supposed to meet the steady state need but we're already in the hole and community college like volume of output of students was didn't comprehend baby boomer retirement and you're like oh my gosh if you look at the statistics a quarter of this workforce and the workforce is like roughly like 12 million people quarter of that workforce is over 55 which means in 10 years, they'll get to retirement age. So then you're like, oh, okay, cool. A quarter of 12 million is 3 million. Divide that by the 10 year span that'll take from a person who's 55 to get to 65. Assume a relatively, you know, like general distribution between the ages of people who are already in manufacturing. You're like, that's 300,000 people every year who are retiring. If we're already only creating one trained person for every eight jobs that are open today, and there's 300,000 <laughs> <laughs> new jobs being open every year, and automation is only going to cover like, you know, 20% of jobs will be like lost or blah, blah, blah. There's like all those factors. You can get a sense of like, this is a problem that isn't going to go away unless most of U.S. manufacturing gets offshored. And if you don't want that to happen, then we have to figure fix this labor problem. And so my wager was like, oh, this is a really big problem. Mm. That's just like one example of, like you said, doing the homework and figuring out what the numbers are. And the numbers are all out there. Yeah. So you're pointing to a lot of like research and homework here. You're just doing <laughs> a lot of that. So there's the fear that, oh, if I really dig in deep, then, you know, it's going to invalidate whatever I came up with. Mm, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I talk found about that, that to be true. Yeah, yeah. So, totally. Over this past year, even when starting Daughters of Rosie, we thought that we were going to have to train people. Mm. Like we thought, oh, okay, cool. We're going to take folks who have like so much soft skills from the service industry and we're going to give them the basic skills to become like a mechanical assembly technician or mm -hmm. a machine operator. And those are like basic skills that we can teach people through online content and blah, 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 blah. Turns out nobody wants that. The people who are hiring these folks don't need that. 
They don't trust the content that someone else is going to be using for training, and they would rather just train people on the job, turns out. And then also, people who are working full-time jobs do not have time to do trainings extra uh, in their lives, and they've got a very, like, how do I know that this is going to be worth it kind of perspective, which is true. Like, they don't know how to determine the ROI on training because they just haven't ever experienced a good ROI on, on spending time learning something that's not already on their job training. And so we have this whole plan for how we were going to do training, what it was going to be like and how it was going to be like so much better than Was that a big part everything. of your plan? Mhm. Okay. Yeah. And we we ran three experiments. They were all null results and we're like, "Okay, we don't actually need to do this and nobody wants it. So let's not do it." And so we, you know, we saved a ton of time and a ton of money simply not building something that didn't need to be built. Hmm. So the question asking is really helpful because it can it can keep you from getting distracted by things that aren't important got it so it is really important i think to like know what question are you trying to answer here's something i'm building and i'm kind of like really into it blah 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 and i've i've gotten this and then here's the reason that invalidates a lot of what i was standing for because mm-hmm. i didn't know mm-hmm what was the emotion that went with it for you? For me, it's like, oh, shoot. Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty dispassionate about things now. Mm-hmm. I get more upset about people when people, specific people, disappoint me. Mm. Like, you know, we'll have a have a great relationship with a company and we're serving one of their like manufacturing plants really well. And then another manufacturing plant, you know, same company, same, you know, basic leadership, there'll be like a manufacturing or like a HR manager who is just like so opposed to what we do and like so threatened by our existence. And they're just like, totally stonewall us they'll never hire someone from daughters of rosie for various reasons and that really annoys me because hmm. <laughs> i'm like oh this isn't a real reason but it's also an opportunity to be like okay so could i change this person's mind how much effort should i put towards exploring that versus like oh you know cut my losses going on to something else mm-hmm. which is usually the case like people change their own minds you can't really change someone's mind They have experiences which allow them to see the world in a new way, but that's a slow process and it's like not a venture scale process. So (laughs) a lot of times I don't spend any time trying to convince people of something. So let's let's talk a little more about that. You see reality a certain way and you're going about building your enterprise and, Mm -hmm. and doing all the things you do. And then you run into people who are just either not on the same page or just don't see the reality that way at all or mm-hmm. or maybe you have to deal with something that's not encouraging as far yeah. as people yeah do you encounter a lot of that and how do you deal with it i dealt with it a lot more at my previous company because we were selling a product that most people just didn't need it was kind of too expensive um for what they were trying to do and the market just wasn't that big and people were like Meh, I kind of like doing things the way I'm doing it. 
which was an example of like, you know, that project, that company started from a government project. So we were designing something for a very specific customer, i.e. the government, U.S. government. And then when we tried to turn that into a product and sell it to regular people, they were like, meh, meh, I don't really want it. And that was really sad. It was really, I was just like, but you could just like the whole world is possible. Like you could use this as like such an empowering tool. It's not like not many people needed it. That sounds like a nightmare. You're passionate about something and you really believe in it and the actual feedback you get from the world. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I wish that we had done more. I mean, this is like so hindsight. I wish that I had done more asking of people in the beginning and Mm. really being critical of, okay, the world needs to convince me to do this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to already be in the yes column. I'm going to be in the no column Mm. and I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to talk to people enough. And if I get enough, yes, I'll move over to the yes column. But basically like by default, every enterprise is a no until proven otherwise. I see a danger here, especially for people who are, let's say, already just kind of in their shell, not motivated to go out there and do something. Yeah. To use this <laughs> as a, all right, I'm already no, all right, Danielle is saying that. Yeah. And, you know, let it's just not even worth it. <laughs> well, the, the fact is, is that it isn't usually worth it. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so the other thing that I'm going to say is a, a quote that I read in a book, which I... I feel like is true, which is if you were going to be an entrepreneur, you'd already be doing it. And, (laughs) 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 but that's not the same. Like entrepreneur is like a very specific thing. It's like starting a business that makes money and like interacts with the society and capitalism in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. Now that's totally different from, I'm a person who sees my life and sees my network and my influence that I can have. And I want the world around me to be different. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to first, I'm going to make it different for myself. And then if that spreads and like turns out other people want the same reality that I want, then that's amazing. I think like entrepreneurism and starting a business and having it be like your livelihood and everything is like such a high bar and most ideas are not that like category of ideas. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go out and try things. Like, I love going out and trying things. I try all kinds of things all the time that aren't uh, like entrepreneurial style ideas. And so, yeah, I guess there's like the like, (laughs) is this a business? The answer is no, until you prove it yes. Is it worth doing? Have fun with it. But don't Mm -hmm. like, you know, take out a loan to do it. (laughs) Don't like complicate it with like financial pressures and don't quit your job. Don't quit your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your job will kind of quit itself. Like if you hit on something and you're like, Oh my gosh, like people are throwing money at me to solve this problem for them. Mm. Like I'm so swamped. I have my full-time job. And then like, also like every weekend I'm running these like 
events where people are paying like a hundred bucks per person to to show up because like we've created something that's really alleviating a pain that they have in their life like then you know your job will quit itself because you'll be like okay i'm totally consumed with this thing i just like you know i've i've lost all interest in my job and i get let go (laughs) that's okay because i'm like doing this other thing that takes me back to what you were saying earlier which is about using your sheer willpower Mm. versus you know your job will quit itself sounds more like going with the force the force is with you yeah versus you're gonna quit your job take the leap and get a loan and go for it i've heard stories where people have done that too because Mm -hmm. they had faith yeah 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 i would say it's like probably pretty rare i mean Mm. okay here's another thing to note most of the businesses in the united states are small businesses that like somebody found a need in their community and they solve that need for people and they get paid for it. And I mean, it's some, it's like an insanely big number of the businesses in the U S are like under 10 people. So there's a lot of entrepreneurism out there. It's just, I don't know. I think that the the narrative around startups has kind of polluted people's ideas of what would be a satisfying life as mm-hmm. like a business owner. And, you know, consulting is a business too. Right. It's a lot of like hustle and networking and, but you know, you get paid to kind of do, do what it is that you do, like meet a certain need for people and you're kind of don't answer to anybody else. Can we actually do a detour on that before we end? Sure. Dealing with other people. The idea of delegating. Having people do things for you. How do you do that? How do you get people interested enough to do that? And then how do you evaluate people on whether if they're doing a good job or not? Mm. Well, I think you have to know enough to be dangerous in terms of like having a lawyer And you're like, okay, lawyer, I need a privacy policy. And I don't really know what needs to be in here. But what I know is that I don't want to spend too much money on it. And I want to be like pretty (laughs) confident. So learning how to gauge like how much you should trust people is just practice. And you have to get burned a lot in the process. You know, having an accountant that you're like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing either. So I'm going to look at this, like kind of sniff test it, have advisors that you really trust that you can like float things by and validate someone's work. But then also like you're probably going to get it wrong a couple times. You just learn to to be able to sniff that out. Mm-hmm. But the other part of, about delegating is that, you know, people really want to do a good job. And one of the ways to help people do a good job is to be really clear about what you want from them. And I struggled with this the first time I ever hired an executive assistant. I like just really struggled with asking her to, there was this one point where I was like, Oh, we need to wash the trash cans. And I just couldn't ask her to do it because I was like, you're so amazing. Like you don't, you're so above washing the trash can. Not that like there's an above or below, but I was like, you're so, you're so skilled. Yeah. Like you're so, you have skills that are far beyond washing this trash can. 
Right. But also then if I wash the trash can, she's like, why are you, do you not think that I could do a good job washing the trash can? <laughs> I'm like, she's like, that's obviously in my job description. And I was like, oh yeah. Hmm. Okay. I'd like for you, I'm going to hand, I'm going to practice. I'm going to write down everything I would like you to do on this post-it and I'm just going to hand it to you. <laughs> And then, you know, we'll go from there. And I did that a couple times. And then finally, you know, finally we were like, okay, we're on the same level here. I can just ask you to do stuff. But it was difficult because I'd been so used to doing things myself. That, yeah. I mean, I, it sounds like you're scaling beyond yourself in some ways and learning how to scale beyond yourself. So uh -huh. even if you could do something doesn't mean you should be doing that. Usually it means you shouldn't. Yeah. You should do the things that only you can do. Right. In the ideal world, if you're doing a quote unquote business, you're only doing the things you think you can do, like only the only person who can do this. Mm -hmm. And it's probably tending to your dream and holding the vision. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one else has that. You started that. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you had unlimited funds, you know, all the other people will be doing all the other things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the beginning, when it was just us two, we like two of us, we did everything ourselves. And then you go to the point where you're like, okay, I can hand this off. And then you take on the, a new part of the business and you build that and then you hand that off. And now we're five people and I've handed off my job three times. Like whatever it was that I was doing most of the time, I have handed off. Mm. And I'm about to finish fundraising, finish, which is a thing that I can't hand off. But then I'm going to take a new job from someone else and grow that into a big thing. And then I am going to hand that off to, to a marketing person. And then I'm just going to keep doing that as the business grows, mm. because that's what I like to do, like build something from nothing, even if it's a function within the company. And my co-founder is the same way too. Like he's, he's about to hand off one big part of what he does to someone. And then he's going to build another part. And then we're going to hire a person to run that and he'll hand it off. And so you have to get really good at letting go, handing things off, and just monitoring things, mm -hmm. keeping keeping the lamp going so that everybody like knows what direction they're pointed in. Right, right, right. Well, Danielle, it's been a pleasure. I learned a lot, <laughs> and I got an insight into how you think and operate. It mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. the The line, uh, fine line of being realistic. Mm -hmm. Business is a real thing in the real world. You got to be realistic. Mm -hmm. And so I love that. And um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. All right. Bye-bye.